Hello, church. Welcome to our midweek devotional. We're going to read from Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in, ho in the hope of the glory of God. Today, as we sing, let's keep that in mind. This joy that we have and the glory that we have received salvation through Jesus Christ. Let us pray together and we will, we're going to sing together as well. Jesus, we thank you for your work on the cross, for giving us salvation. Now we're allowed to enter before the throne of God to worship him and to recognize that he's the one and only God, the serving of all praise and glory. Amen. Church, let's sing together. We have been justified by faith through Jesus Christ. It's only by His grace we stand. Once bound by sin and shame, now slave to righteousness. Our faith perfected by His love. Praise the Savior, He has won. Our sin defeated through His blood. Now exalted Jesus reigns Hail the King, praise His name While we were weak He died Making us reconcile To God for all eternal days And even in our fading flesh Our only hope and rest it's found in faith that Jesus says, Praise the Savior, He has won. Our sin defeated through His blood. Now exalted Jesus reigns. Hail the King, praise His name. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the glory of God. Our hope of glory is found in the one who gives great joy to sing about. The love that He poured out Forever lifted high Our Savior Jesus Christ The gift of God given in love Praise the Savior He has won Our sin defeated through His blood Now exalted Jesus reigns Hail the King Praise His name We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God We rejoice in the glory of God we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God.
God, we rejoice in the glory of God. We rejoice in the glory of God. Amen. Prophets proclaim to our fathers long ago Turn from your statues and your idols made of gold Rise from your knees Start worshiping The splendors of broken gods Turn and see your King There is one God God, the same world who stood through the ages, Jesus Christ our Lord. Rise from your knees. The splendors of broken gods Turn and see your King There is one God over all Kings and rulers and He reigns 
Church, welcome back to our English midweek service. As you can see, we're back in the auditorium here, and it feels a little bit weird, especially since it's so big and there's no one in here except for a couple of people. But this is a good sign that we're moving in the right direction. Pretty soon, we will be uh, coming back. So this is just getting used to it and trying to see how things work out. So get ready for that, my friends. Pretty soon we'll be back in our auditorium. But as of now, for the rest of us, we will be studying uh, the attributes of God for the next couple of weeks as we started last week. So today we're on part two of the introduction to the attributes of God. And as an introduction, it is, it, it is my intention to really get you to understand the, the gravity of, of theology and the weight of of learning and knowing the concept of, of God and the person of God. And ultimately, it is because of our knowledge of God, God that we will focus all of our spiritual attention and respond with doxological praise and, and with a, a heart in tune with the Spirit. So that's always our intention, and that's kind of what we started off last week Uh, so we're preparing ourselves to get into the attributes of God, especially because they, des they describe who God is. But we can't move forward until we have at least a, a framework on how to do theology. So that's what these in in introductions are worth for us and what we're doing during this time. So as a remi reminder, once again, that our study of theology has the ultimate end goal of doxology or of worship, bring us down to our knees. And this is beautifully seen and depicted in this wonderful scenario and wonderful Old Testament narrative in the book of Daniel. So I want to take you there for a couple of, of minutes just so that you can see what this means to be theological. Uh, obviously, Daniel didn't understand the this a modern term of theology, or he didn't know he was doing theology during the time, but this is a great understanding on how we should do theology and what theology does for the believer in Christ or for the child of God. So Daniel, as we remember in the Bible, goes through some difficult conflict, especially with, within his people with the people of God in Judah. They are completely taken over by the Babylon, Babylonians, by the kingdom of Babylon, and they are taken out of their land. Their temple is desecrated. The, the people are exiled and some brutally assassinated. 
people are exiled out of their land, and some people are made to work and serve the king that destroyed their very own people. In this case, four young gentlemen, four youthful men, go into the king's court uh, because he requested them so that they could learn the culture, learn the language, and learn their type of theology. And it was here where Daniel is confronted with, with this concept of a king demanding attention from their subjects. And in this way, Daniel uh, reversed and uh, stepped, stepped back from eating and he fasted on vegetables to ignore the food of the king. He did not want to subjugate himself to a foreign king. And later on we will read in Daniel that he never bowed the knee to any foreign god or foreign king. And this is important to understand in Daniel's case because Daniel, what the Bible teaches, is that he was faithful to God, faithful to his understanding of what he was, especially being from Judah, he was faithful and he never bowed and he never ate the king's food. He remained steadfast in his ways, all because the simple answer is theology. Because he understood theology, or better yet, he understood God. And obviously, as we've mentioned in the beginning, we will never come to a full comprehension of God, but we can know God through his word and through his revelation. And so in this case, Daniel has this relationship with God, and that's where we ended up last week by, by describing this, this word of, of the face of God, which brings us to an understanding of God's proximity towards his people. In this case, theology works because God wants to be known. Because God wants to be known from his people, and therefore he reveals himself to his people, he accommodates himself to his people, and he speaks to his people. And he also does wondrous works for his people. So there is this concept of knowing God because God alone wants to be known. And so Daniel, in this case, knows God based off what he has seen and experienced. And this is heightened when we come to this dangerous moment in Daniel's life. I want you to have your Bibles ready to Daniel chapter 2. But it comes to a dangerous moment in Daniel's life where at the beginning of the book within chapter 1 and 2, we have the king uh, having dreams. And the, the Bible says that sleep uh, he couldn't sleep anymore. He was being uh, traumatized at night. And so he was becoming very restless. And so what does the king do? Because of all these dreams he was having, he, he calls all the wise men of Babylon, and they all come, and all these wise men or, or di diviners come and try to make sense of what's going on. And so he asks them to come up with a solution. What is he dreaming? And so obviously the, 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 ma the magicians and these wise men couldn't read the mind of the king. The king told them, you have to tell me what I'm dreaming and then interpret my dream. 
And so obviously the, the, these magicians and wise men could not do that because no man can read the mind of another man. If you look at verse 11 in chapter 2, I'll just read that briefly with you. The, the magicians said in verse 11, the thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So this was an impossible task. And so what does the king do? The king gets upset and makes a, a decree saying, if you don't tell me, I will kill you. I will kill everyone. As a matter of fact, he calls all the wise men and all the magicians of Babylon to be murdered because they could not tell the king his dream. So here's where we get Daniel coming into the scene early on in chapter 2 as a man who knows God and as a man who therefore stands up to the king and says, I can interpret the dream. But he doesn't do it by himself. Daniel understands that he will have help. And so therefore, when Daniel comes to the king in chapter 2, verse 28, he, he starts off with a wonderful phrase. And it says, but there is a God in heaven. I want you to read chapter 2 from verse 25. Then, the Bible says, Then Ariok brought Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles of Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery of the king has asked. But, here's verse 28, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So then, after he goes on to interpret the dream. What does this teach us? Well, this teaches us, first and foremost, that there's an, an initial reaction to the knowledge of God. This is theology, and this is what Daniel understood. The reason why his faith allowed him to encounter the king on a one-on-one -on -one basis was because he knew there was a God in heaven. And so, therefore, Daniel can 
pray to this God in heaven. And for Daniel, this God in heaven isn't distant, doesn't listen, or just doesn't care. For Daniel, this God in heaven would incline his ear to hear what he has to say, especially because he has been placed there by this God in heaven. And, and that becomes more evident as you read the book of Daniel. What's important here, friends, is that before he confronts the king, here is what Daniel says. In verse 20 of chapter 2, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. All right, so we'll stop there. I'm going to read the entire context here. But, but do you see the initial reaction to, of Daniel right before he goes to the king? So when he tells the king in verse 28, he knows that there's already a God in heaven. Before he comes to the king, he recognizes this by doxology. And we've repeated that once and once and over and over again in order to get you to understand as God's people, we don't do theology just so it could stay in our brains. We don't do theology just so that we can know. We do it because it affects the very person of who we are. And so Daniel, before coming to the king, he goes before God and then to his friends, but he goes to God with doxology. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and in the light dwells in, in him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise from you have given for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter you see my friends the people of god are required to know god because god himself has made this revelation available to us so god's people in Daniel's case, receive strength, hope, faith, and love from their understanding of who God is and how he works. Daniel knew God's people would face difficult times, and this is all the case throughout the book of Daniel. They face difficulty, they face troubles, they face trials, they face temptations. But, there's a big but here, the people that know God will be strong. That, my friends, is important because that is why we study theology. Look at what Daniel says again. In chapter 11 of Daniel, verse 32, hear what he says. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take 
action. What what were those words? The people that know their God shall stand firm and take action. So theology, my friends, maintains us strong And in Daniel's case, for the people that have been exiled, for the people who have seen the desecration of of Judah and the the desecration of the temple, for the people who have been uh, taken away from their land, who are serving foreign uh, nations under under foreign power, for all these people, though they're facing the most difficult moments in their life, though they're in the most dire circumstances of their life, they will remain strong and move forward for the simple reason that they know their God. And so that is why we come to these profound studies of Scripture and profound studies of of concepts and doctrines to help us wrap our minds as much as we can of who God is so that when those difficult times come in our life, in our moments of distress, in our current present pandemics, we know who God is and therefore we stand firm, as Paul would say, or we stand in strength, as Daniel says, and carry out actions in God's name. So the purpose of our theological assessments become profound as as John reveals it in the book of Revelations chapter 1. You don't have to go there, but if you remember uh, Revelations chapter chapter 1, verse 17, John depicts the kingdom, the throne of God, and the only thing he could do is fall as if he was dead. So before God... We recognize who we are as Calvin's, as we studied in Calvin's language last week. And so because of that, we understand the greatness of our God. And so therefore, we fall to our face in worship because we know that apart from God, we can do nothing. That is why we stress theology. And that is why, as an introduction to this, to this long study on the attributes, we will begin with the concepts of theology and its importance. So every week we'll discuss the importance of theology and why we're doing this in order to center our faith directly on the person who has revealed himself to us, which is God. So where we ended up last week, we, we began to speak on this wonderful moment of Moses Uh, that Moses encounters God on the mountain. It's a wonderful story, kind of like the story that we read about Daniel just right now. But but here, we we will begin to understand some language, some of the language that the Bible uses to therefore describe to us who God is. And, And once again, this is an introduction. This is just to really get you your mind uh, in focus at, the, at this moment. But there is language that we must understand in the Bible. And, and we'll, it'll, it'll help us with our understanding of who God is because this language can, can sometimes be very tricky. And there's, very, there's a lot of difficulties, as we will see, 
the more that we study this with certain things about God that, that will sometimes leave us even more confused. However, God has revealed himself enough for us to know what we need to know about God. There is nothing else. The mysteries, as Paul says, has been already revealed to us in Jesus Christ. That mystery, uh, God is, is in himself no longer a mystery to us in the fact that we can know him and there are things that we will never know, but what we can know, that is exactly what we need. And so here, these language, the language that is used throughout Scripture becomes very important because it shows us certain aspects of God. This is called anthropomorphic language, coming from two distinct words, anthros, which is man or human, and the morph the, uh, terminology, which is kind of the form of that. And so God is depicted in human Form. Now, does this mean God, the, the, the essence of our God Almighty is, is a human? Well, we see him in human form through the incarnation in Jesus Christ. He is the, the human uh, version of God. This is God in, in the flesh as we've studied in the book of John. But this anthropomorphic language describes to us what the Old Testament saints understood about God prior to Jesus. And even what we, in the, the New Testament saints, from the first century on, what we know of God through anthropomorphic language because we no longer see Jesus and we don't see God. It's one of the biggest hiccups in most modern skepticisms. There's, God is not visible. He is not Seen. We can't see God, and so therefore he must not exist. But if we go back to the passage in Exodus, when we study it, and this encounter in Exodus with Moses and God on that mountain, what we'll learn is that there are certain anthropomorphic language that is used during this personal encounter. With Moses, So this becomes very important for us. Uh, if you go there to Exodus chapter 3, we'll start off on verse 21. And the Bible says, The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. That's the end of chapter 33. But here we have some interesting depictions of God. When Moses requests to see God's glory or his essence, God replies with anthropomorphic language. When he passes by, that to us will reflect some type of feet or legs that help him move. Or some of us would say he would float by. Uh, God says, hand, my hand will cover you. God says, you cannot see my face. And he also says, you will be able to see my back or the backside. So he uses human language to describe 
his form? And that, my friends, becomes a huge question that we're going to have to speak a lot about. Because there's sometimes these issues in a general setting on a Sunday morning. We don't have time to really dig deep on, on what, whether or not God has a form or God has, looks like a human. Like, we don't have that time to discuss that because it's more of a proclamation. It's a time of just getting into the word of God and, and proclaiming the gospel. Here in these settings, like we mentioned earlier on, these aren't preachings. These are just mainly teachings on concepts that the Bible teaches about God, in this case, doctrine, in this case, theology. And, and so we'll have a little bit more time to explore these sort of theological questions. Does God have a form? If he does, what, what does it look like? If he's formless, then what does that mean? Why does God use his hands? Why does God depict himself as having hands or a backside or legs or a face? And so therefore, does God look like a human? And so these things that we will begin to encounter, that we'll, we should answer or we should see what the Bible says about these very things in order for us to make a more profound understanding of our God. And so when Moses asks for this or requests for this, we see that God uses this anthropomorphic language on a general level now because we know that God is spirit. So if we were to answer generally, is God formed or shaped in the way of a human? We could generally answer the question, no, he doesn't have a human form. And so therefore, when he uses this language, it is to a certain extent accommodation to us. When he says, cover his eyes or he covered him with his hand, that could just mean anthropomorphically that God's being will cover them. And so in order for us to understand this, it becomes the way somebody covers their face when they can't see anything. The hand will cover their eyes. And, and so it becomes easier for the human to understand what God is doing through anthropomorphic language on a general level. Again, because we're starting this off on a general level, this becomes a, a general answer. Uh, we do know, because the Bible clearly says it in several passages, as we'll see right now, that God is a spirit. So we'll also have to get to that notion and concept of what it means for God to be a spirit. Uh, because it'll seem as though there is contradictions within uh, certain biblical texts. But in this case, we know that God is spirit primarily because in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Verse 12, the Bible says, The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. In verse 15 of chapter 4, Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form. On the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Verse 16, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves 
in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. So on a general level, we've seen here that God has no form and that human beings should not make a God or an idol in a form of a human being. And therefore, you see that when God uses the language in Exodus to describe his hand, his feet, his back, his face, it's anthropomorphic language, a certain way to accommodate himself to us so that we can understand it better. It's uh, the, the, the 16th century theologians like Calvin would use this term accommodation and describe it the way a mother accommodates to their child when the child can't speak in the same way God accommodates himself to us. So this becomes very important as we keep and continue in our study. And so that's why we'll, we'll spend some time discussing the spirit aspect or that that understanding of God. The reason we must study this concept of God's being separately, especially the form and the spirit being of God, is because we have to answer questions of God in the sense of him, is he then immaterial or is he a material being? These are in a sense, philosophical terms to describe that which has something tangible like this pulpit is material. You can see its definitions. You can see where it begins and where it ends. And so therefore, it has a material essence. Something immaterial has no form, no shape. We can't see it. We don't know where it starts or where it begins. We can say that our mind is immaterial because we don't see it. Our brain is material because we can see it through some x-rays. But our mind is immaterial. And so we have to begin to answer those questions because certain biblical passages, as we will see, speak on different levels. Uh, we'll have to answer uh, things like, can we then ever see God? Can God then be seen if he has no form, if he has no shape, if he's immaterial, can then we see God? And so we'll have to answer that because, for instance, Job chapter 19 verse 26 says, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So Job has this understanding, a theological understanding, that he will see God. In the prophet Isaiah, chapter 31, verse 3, he says, The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. So right there, Isaiah compares and contrasts that which has a form and that which is spirit. But then he says, God has a hand. In Matthew, the words of our Lord say that those pure in heart, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, those who are pure in heart, they are blessed for they shall see God. So we have to understand this language. We have to understand these 
biblical concepts of being able to see or experience or, or, or know God. What does it mean? There, there's, there's differences here that we really must come to agreement upon. So we can ask then, does God have flesh? I mean, Job said that he's going to see him. Isaiah said that he's going to see him. Uh, Matthew sa- and, and Jesus says in Matthew that the poor in heart will see God. So therefore, is God flesh or material? If, he, if he's spirit, he's immaterial. If he is flesh or of a material substance, then he can be seen. So which is it? You know, like, are we going to see him or not? Or, or what are we going to see when we do see him? How can we tell the difference in Scripture when it's a literal or metaphorical, anthropomorphic language that is being depicted? And that, my friends, becomes the, 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 our goal today to begin to discuss how we understand language in the Bible. And so all these little hiccups or all these little questions are, are just really answered by what Scripture teaches us about God's very form and God's very nature. And we'll come to conclusions based off Scripture. And at this point, it's helpful to know that I don't know all these answers either. I have some concept based off what the Bible teaches me, but ultimately my life doesn't revolve or my worship doesn't revolve on my understanding if God has a form or God has flesh. It doesn't, it, it doesn't come down to that for my worship. It's helpful. It, it will help us in later on, but it doesn't provoke worship to that extent. This is good and it's beneficiary for the church to come to these understandings, but everyone here is finite. There's theologians that disagree on every aspect of what we're going to be talking about here. So no one has come to a complete agreement because we're all human beings. We don't know the, everything about God, but we do know what he has revealed to us. These, these difficulties that will confront uh, whether we're going to interpret him as literal or metaphorical or anthropomorphic um, will we'll confront us, but it will get us to, to, to really figure out what, what the Word of God is teaching us here so that it can provoke doxology. For example, in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, the resurrected Lord says, See my hands and my feet. That it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Becomes very interesting that the Lord says that because his disciples couldn't recognize him as soon as he confronted them. So therefore he says, Touch me and see. And what, what did they see? What were they looking at? And that's going to be very helpful because once we get to know that realm of what type of body Christ, the resurrection Lord had, it'll ease off certain other aspects that we'll be confused about in, in the future. But then Paul says also in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. 
Amen. God is invisible. We can't see him. So we're going to spend some time on that. Another scriptures that we'll come to uh, will help us get past this, but we must know that this is what the Bible uses for the moment being to describe to us who God is because there's no other way to do it. And so therefore, some of the language and biblical examples that we have in the Bible are when, they, when, when the Bible depicts God as having eyes. Now, are we going to say that God has eyes? Is this literal, anthropomorphic, or metaphorical? Certain, to a certain extent, we get to see this, and we'll, we'll, we'll come to definitions of this through certain scripture. For example, when, when in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, uh, the Word of God says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will still have wars. So we see here that God has eyes. Well, does that really mean that God has eyes? Or is this a representation of the all-knowing God as part of his attribute? He sees and knows all things. Not because he has eyes, but because he, it's part of who he is. He is all-knowing. The Bible also depicts God as having wings. So if we piece together a lot of these elements that we'll see in the Bible, it, God will have an interesting shape. It, it'll be an interesting drawing that we would have of God if we were to utilize everything the Bible says he has. For in this case, wings. In Psalm chapter 91, verse 4, the psalmist says, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. So does that mean God literally has wings? Are we to picture our God as flying like an eagle above us? Or what does this really depict? One, in certain, to a certain extent, it's representational of his covenant love and mercy and protection over his children. So we're beginning to see the lingo and the terminology that the Bible uses to describe the God that we worship. The Bible also depicts God as having ears. Psalm chapter 17, verse 1 says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips, from lips free of deceit. Here, God's depicted as having ears, as a normal human being. Why? Because the psalmist, as, as well as most of the Psalter, as well as most of the prophets, cried out to God, expecting God to listen. As a matter of fact, you and I, as New Testament believers, cry out to God continuously because we know that God will listen. Whether or not we, we really identify or can see a figure having ears is, you know, is not the point. All we do know is that God listens. But the Bible gives us this intelligible understanding so that we can understand or be accommodated to a God that does listen, who understands and who is intelligible and therefore all-knowing. So a lot of these depictions or, 
or anthropomorphic language that we'll see in the Bible really describe God's attributes. Another one that we'll see continuously, especially in the book of Revelations, is that God sits and stands. Therefore, we have a whole bunch of features here. We have legs, we have, we have feet, uh, we have a back, we have a, a, a body form where he sits and stands. Isaiah says in chapter 40, 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. So here we have God seated, hovering over the world, looking at what's going on. This is a simple representation of the immutable authority and power of God. When God is depicted, as well as the Son of God depicted as seated on the throne, it is because He is in control and He is governing all things. So when we see a picture of God seated on a throne, we can feel a fair amount of comfort knowing that that means He is in control. And we've said this continuously as we've lived out I don't even know how many days we've had in this pandemic lately, but as we've lived through, through all this time, we've come to the understanding that, hey, God is seated on the throne. Why? Because God is still in control, and God governs all things. But this is language, once more, that God uses to help his people understand who and what he is. Why? Well, Humanity is frail. People are frail. And when people are frail, they come up with variations and deviations of God. For example, God's very own people in Israel grew impatient with Moses as Moses spent time with God, receiving the law of God, as he stood upon the mountain of God with the very presence of God. And while Moses was asking for this glory to pass by and receiving God's law, the people grew weary and impatient. And so therefore the people made for themselves an idol. In chapter 32, of Exodus, verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. It's the same word face in the Hebrew that we've been studying in last week. They desired to be before many gods instead of God. And so it, it continues, as for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So because of this right there, at, at the end of this verse, Israel grew impatient. They could not see God. And so therefore they made a God that they could see, touch, and feel with their very own hands. The stunning contrast here, or it can be in a joke type of setting that while there is an, an immensity of God upon the mountain speaking and revealing his glory or part of his glory to Moses, the people are down there making for themselves a little statue that they did with their own 
hands that can't do anything. What Israel tried to do then is what we're also going to study in this long uh, uh, season of, of theology that the people try to form a God in their own image and in their own likeness to be modified to their own needs. In a certain extent, they tried to domesticate God. But my friends, the Bible teaches us that God cannot be domesticated. God is infinite. God is powerful. God is God. And therefore, that's why he says, I am who I am. We'll stop there, my friends, and next week we'll continue in our introduction to theology and to the attributes of God so that we could worship a God that we may never know completely, but we know enough of to provoke within us doxology. Stay tuned, stay strength in, in God, and, and, and make sure you're reading your Bible throughout these weeks as we continue to dig deep. Let me pray for you, and we are dis. Missed. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for allowing us to, to wherever we're at in, in our homes or wherever we find ourselves at this moment, Father, that we could really focus on who you are and what you've done for us, especially in the light of Jesus Christ, in whom we see that the glory of God is revealed in his face. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for, for, for watching over your people and for watching over this nation. Even though we see the turmoil, we know that you are God and you are still in control. Amen. <laughs>